Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. It's recess. MPs are back in their constituencies, Parliament has risen, and all is quiet. Well, no, not really. Queues at Dover are making holidaymakers hot under the collar, and turning up the heat on ministers to find a way to fix the problem. But is it just an inevitable result of Brexit? Teachers have rejected the government's pay deal, there are more strikes ahead. Or can a solution be found? Social care was meant to be fixed by the Conservatives, Boris Johnson promised he would sort it out. But this week the government seemed to ditch any plans for reform. And then, in a reminder of what politicians and politics can achieve, Easter weekend marks the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. We'll look at the significance of this landmark and what might follow. Joining me throughout are an IFG duo who follow every twist of the Brexit saga and keep a close eye on Northern Irish politics. And that's Jess Sargent and Jill Rutter. Hi both. Hi Hi, Hannah. (laughs) And I'm delighted to be joined throughout by Peter Foster, Public Policy Editor at the Financial Times. Hi Peter, how are you? Very well, thanks. Now I think we just need to begin by reflecting on some pretty big developments in Scotland at the end of this week. Jess, what's going on? So today, the former SNP uh, Chief Executive Peter Morell, who is also the husband of Nicola Sturgeon, has been released without charge um, pending further in- investigation after being arrested yesterday. So it's an ongoing investigation, um, and so we don't have a lot of details, and there's also a limit to what can be discussed in public at this stage. But we understand it's something related to the SNP's finances, and in particular, the use of donations that were in intended to be used for a future Scottish independence referendum campaign that may have been used for other purposes. So there's not a huge amount we can say at the moment, but it feels like a story in which there could be further developments. And not exactly the start that Hamza Youssef wanted to his new uh, role as First Minister. Absolutely, there's been a lot of pressure on on him this week. Um, But also I think it has raised some questions about Nicola Sturgeon's resignation and to what extent she might have foreseen this particular scenario when she made that somewhat surprised decision to step down at that particular time. So I think this does raise questions for the future of the SNP as well as how the new First Minister deals with this very difficult and sensitive issue. Let's turn now to those Dover tailbacks. If you're sitting in your car and listening to this podcast, and I hope that helps you pass the time, Jill, can you tell us what's gone wrong? So what seems to have been have happened is that uh, last Friday, there were a lot of coaches booked to go over the ferry routes between Dover into Calais, so the short straits as they're known, which are obviously a major crossing point. You know, upsurge in Easter holiday traffic, lots and lots of coaches. Um, that combined with some bad weather causing delays to ferry schedules, the upshot was that there were huge big tailbacks because of delays in processing people crossing the channel. Now, in the past, when the UK was a member of the EU, that was not an external frontier of the EU. It wasn't within the sh- we weren't within the Schengen area, but there didn't need to be that much in the way of border formalities. You remember, you know, you used to show that you had a British passport and be waved through. That changed with Brexit because the EU treats this now as a third country frontier, which it is. They have to assure themselves that people are coming in, have sufficient funds, uh, are not exceeding the 90 days in 180 limit that UK citizens with only British passports can now spend in the EU. So 
what you have is a small increase in processing time. But when you have lots and lots of people going through a border, backlogs merging in, that then escalates into this. So what I think it exposes is this border is now very fragile. It's sort of very prone to delays. We've already seen that to anyone who tried to get the Eurostar over to Brussels or Paris. Last summer will have reported unprecedented uh, queues there in St Pancras. As in St Pancras, where the answer has been to cut capacity enormously, one of the big problems in Dover is it's a very sort of space-constrained area. So it's quite difficult to construct massive amounts more capacity to process coaches uh, with lots and lots of tourists on board if you want to go through that sort of set of formality. And that is why the Home Secretary was wrong to deny that it had anything to do with Brexit. It has quite a lot to do with Brexit. It's not just Brexit, but Brexit plus compounding factors equals delays. Peter, how does this play into the politics? As Jill said, the ministers aren't that keen to acknowledge a role for Brexit in this. Um, but Labour are also treading gingerly on this, aren't they? Yeah, it's not just ministers. Lisa Nandy uh, on the Sunday programmes uh, uh, was equally mealy-mouthed. Um, I think a couple of things uh, about that is that neither political party uh, is really prepared to have a kind of fact-based discussion about the consequences of Brexit, which makes it really difficult to have a fact-based conversation about what you actually do about the downstream consequences of Brexit. There are some, I think, in, interesting points about what happened just gone. The first is that in the tailbacks back in July, Dover complained that there weren't enough police de frontière uh, uh, border force workers, but this time they were very clear that there were enough now, there is only one coach hall in Dover, and the problem here is that in coaches, unlike in cars, everyone has to get off. The passport by law must be scanned and then stamped. And so the ferry capacity of coaches exceeds the port capacity, and that's why you've seen these caps effectively come in on um, on coaches. What The other thing that's happened, which isn't been you know, fully noted, is that the channel effectively put its prices up uh, uh, nearly doubled prices in two years to keep coaches out. They price coaches out of the channel, so that's faced more um, uh, uh, more coaches going on to Dover. I think one other interesting thing, of course, is that when you're trying to ignore the consequences of Brexit, um, when I was speaking this week with uh, uh, coach operators in the North and the Midlands, it's one of those little things where actually it lands in the in the red wall. It lands in the heartlands. You know, people going on coach trips and and companies getting people phoning because they're cancelling and not wanting to get in there. So politically, uh, that's an area I think one of these little areas of Brexit that uh, uh, you know has actually landed. Uh, and of course, it's all going to get worse because uh, at the end of the year or early next year. The EU is going to introduce its uh, uh, external entry system, which requires biometric data submitted at the border. Uh, and unless there's a very uh, a surprising agreement uh, to exempt ports, um, those processing times are going to get longer and the border is going to get uh, more and more difficult. And Peter, I mean, you mentioned that this is being noticed um, in uh, constituencies. Do you think it's the sort of thing that has the potential to add up to, to leading to some kind of Brexit backlash? Or do you think the sense of having control over borders is more valuable to people than a, a few queues going on holiday? You know, I think it's one of these drip, drip, drip things. It, with neither political party is going to play the Brexit card. So in that sense, you know, the Labour Party aren't going to be running around the red wall saying, look at what these silly Tories did with their Brexit uh, uh, gumming up the ports, because they're frankly running scared. And, you know, when you talk to Labour politicians, they just, what's so interesting is they just don't have the 
any confidence that they can change or win the argument and therefore they're not prepared to engage in the argument would that lead to a situation where you know you, you find politicians taking for people for fools because i think most people can see that um you know brexit is the reason why the border is much thicker than it was and in fact david frost was on twitter you know acknowledging as much you know and that's the price of sovereignty the price of having taking back control etc i do think however that when you look more broadly at the polling on brexit you start to see that people are increasingly dissatisfied with um, the downstream consequences of Brexit, with the with the economic impacts of Brexit. And in some ways, I think the public are actually further ahead in the conversation than the politicians are. And I think one of the one of the dangers here is that the Labour Party, by being so mealy mouthed and just frankly so timid on Brexit, and not even prepared to say look, we're not relitigating Brexit, we're not going back into the European Union, but there has to be a better way of doing Brexit. If they're going to have this complete head in the sand approach, and then after the election, loads of people are expecting them to actually, you know, move much further than they're signalling at the moment. And once they've got over the line, and they've got a majority, I'm not sure what the democratic mandate of that is, you know, it seems to me, you know, if you weren't, you know, up front with people on the hustings, yeah, that, then you're creating hostages to fortunes. But I guess that's all one for the future. Yes, another one to look forward and, and see. Jess, you wrote a lot for us about the Windsor framework, and that was seen at the time as something of a triumph for Rishi Sunak. Has this situation in Dover rather taken the gloss off that for the Prime Minister? So I don't think this situation undermines the achievement that the Prime Minister made uh, in significantly approving the arrangements for trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But in terms of selling that deal, um, Rishi Sunak had to make the case for the benefits of access to the EU single market. That's something that they really kind of hamped up, um, which I think caused some people to say, well, if it's so good, then why don't why doesn't the rest of the UK have that? Now, it's worth making a distinction here that the problems at Dover at the moment are related mainly to sort of immigration controls. And the Northern Ireland Protocol is mainly about trade borders. So slightly different things here. But actually, something else that came out this week was the draft border operating model um, for checks between the EU and Great Britain. So at the moment, we're not imposing checks on the majority of goods coming from the EU. Um, and this uh, new border operating model um announces the intention to phase in these checks as early as some of them um, October this year. So there's a question there about whether there'll be future border delays of a different kind as a result um, of the change in the trading relationship as well. And I think in in that sense, that will bring the, the difference between Northern Ireland and, and Great Britain into sharper focus um, and I think require uh, the government to you know continue to justify uh, the decision that, that they've made in pursuing that sort of trading arrangement. I think, Hannah, the similarity between the two issues, I mean, I don't think, the, I think as Jess says, there isn't a political read across, but the similarity is that what we are now seeing work out are the consequences of imposing, you know, proper international borders uh, onto sort of movements of goods between GB and Northern Ireland and the EU or movement of people between the UK and the EU you know, into systems that have grown up when that was pretty free-flowing as a consequence of EU membership. And just that you have big volumes of people going through Dover because it was very easy to go through Dover. Lots of people, as Peter said, used to go through on the channel, uh, can't now because that became unmanageable and they've been priced out of that. So you've got a sort of 
economic people flow model that grew up for one set of circumstances when they're going through the adjustment pains of changing those circumstances quite radically. And that is how Brexit is playing out. And it may be down the line that people do try to do some sort of agreement about, you know, checks, you know, pre-enrolment, etc. But I mean, the EU system uh, with quite heavy duty checks going over the border that's due to come in was one where the UK as an EU member, I think, was urging quite heavy compliance requirements. And now we're catching ourselves on the wrong side of it. Just to follow Jill's point quickly there, you know, if you get an export health certificate for a, you know, container laid of frozen lamb coming from New Zealand and it takes five weeks for the ship to get over the sea, that's not a problem. If you've got export health certificates for mixed loads of high frequency trucks, you know, because the the ferries in the channel are essentially a road under under and over the channel. Um, That causes huge problems. And I think the imposition of checks belatedly by the UK side on imports from the EU into the UK is going to be interesting. It's a double-edged sword. What we saw when the EU imposed those checks on goods going from Great Britain into the EU was a lot of smaller traders stopped trading. And that caused you know frictions and problems in supply chains. I think what's unclear is when the UK imposes checks, the extent to which that's going to cause EU traders to give up on the UK. It's not worth it, not worth the friction, not worth the market, and what that will do to our supply chains and our prices. But it is a double-edged sword because Actually, we've been giving the EU exporters into the UK a free pass. And if we want to start having conversations with Europe about smoothing out some of these processes, making them more realistic, maybe importing some of the ideas that are on the Northern Ireland GB to NI border into the high friction Dover-Calais border, remember the one that Dominic Raab said he was surprised about, then we need to, in some ways, impose some pain in the other direction. Right, Because right now the EU exporters are just getting a free pass and we need to make them think a bit, but we need to cut, we don't need to cut off our nose to spite our face. And that is going to be an interesting little dynamic, little, little drama going forward, particularly into next year. PG, I understand you have a new book coming out. Is this going to answer some of these these questions for us? The uh, the title, I believe, what went wrong with Brexit and what can we do about it? Yeah, the first half of that book is easier to write than the second half. Yes, coming out <laughs> on September the seventh. It has been really thought provoking actually writing it um, because I think you know it's really hard to have a kind of fact based non-political, non-partisan conversation about Brexit, not, you know, get it into the pragmatics. And that's the kind of elevator pitch of the book is if they won't talk about it, we need to. You know, we all need to move the conversation on to get better outcomes at the border for coach passengers, you know, for our exporters. You know, UK trade performance since the trade deal came into force has been woeful when you compare it to the G7. Um, You know, and this sort of approach that you've got from, you know, you listen to Jeremy Hunt or David Lammy, actually, they both kind of say that we don't really want to talk about Brexit and over time it will go away. And I think my argument in the book is actually it won't. You know, these are permanent structural frictions. When you talk to the CBI and you talk to the trade groups, business doesn't find it going away. It's not catastrophic. You know, it's the boiling of the frog, but we are at a serious and persistent marginal competitive disadvantage because of some of the barriers thrown up by Brexit. And we need to have a serious conversation uh, about how those are addressed, and that, and that, I hope, you know, this book will be one you know, little little data point in the conversation. As you say, I think it's a really interesting point. If Labour does, does win the next election, they need to think carefully about what they have the mandate uh, to do, uh, what they've actually talked about doing to the electorate uh, in the run-up to that election. If they do think they're going to take a different approach 
um, and and that won't necessarily be an easy thing to do. No, indeed, uh, no, indeed, and uh, and I think one of the dangers here is that there will be voices saying. Look, if you're staying out of the single market, you're staying out of a customs union with the EU, this tinkering with the TCA really won't make much difference. Do you really want to reopen the wounds of Brexit? Does Prime Minister Starmer want to waste the first two years of his new term in office by doing nothing about Brexit? The argument I would make is that the alternative is to do nothing, is to let trade and political relationships continue to atrophy. And I think that would be a massive mistake. You have to start somewhere. And we've seen with the Windsor framework that actually the kind of absolute sovereigntist purists on Brexit are no longer quite the political arbiters of this process that they once were. There is space for a better conversation. And we need to have it because these relationships, they have half-lives. Europe will find other places to do business with, other places to uh, send its university students and its musicians and other people to populate its orchestras, etc. And so part of fixing Brexit is also part of fixing policy making. And let's have a more fact-based approach, less ideology. And and I think the two dovetail into the other. Those are certainly the sorts of questions that the, the IFG would endorse. So the government has pledged to get Brexit done, but it also pledged to reform social care. So how's that working out? Our colleague Stuart Hottinot, an IFG researcher, joins us now to explain. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Hannah. Okay, so can you remind us, Stuart, what the government promised it would do? Yeah, of course. So the Conservatives made social care reform a key pledge in their 2019 manifesto. And Boris Johnson promised that they would fix social care once and for all, was the the big quote. Um, And for a while, it looked really promising. They published two white papers in the autumn of 2021 that laid out their plans for reform. One addressed the issues of charging. So in other words, who pays for care and how much they pay. Um, That was the introduction of the cap on personal care costs, a more generous means test, and an end to people who pay for their own care, paying more than publicly funded uh, people who receive care. The second white paper was called People at the Heart of Care and made a range of commitments to improve users' experience of the service. These included things such as more support for unpaid carers, better use of technology in the service, and I think crucially, investment in um, the workforce. So things like uh, better training, improved career progression, certification of people who start working as carers, all things that are very important for improving the currently awful retention rate in the service. And where have we got to with these reforms now? So on charging reforms, the the measures I, I outlined before were supposed to be implemented in October this year. But at the autumn statement last year, the government pushed those reforms back until at least October 2025. There, there were good arguments for that at the time. Local authorities didn't have su- sufficient resources both in terms of funding and staff, to properly launch the changes. Uh, There was also a feeling that the reforms had been badly communicated with, for example, people assuming that the cap on costs um, is for all social care costs, whereas in fact it's only for personal care costs. So there there, there was a strong argument for delay at that point. But I think the announcement this week, which addressed the second part of the reforms, the, the people at the heart of care reforms, shows actually that Maybe these reforms now are sort of less, uh, or, or the government's taken less seriously than we initially thought. So this week, the government quietly published a press release that showed huge cuts to the proposals from that white paper. So the big headlines are 300 million worth of funding for supported housing has been cut. And I think most importantly, the workforce initiatives that we talked about, the funding for that has been halved from 500 million to 250 million pounds. And that one's 
particularly galling. The the workforce crisis is arguably more acute than the highly publicised one in the NHS. And the proposals in the white paper, I think, would have made a pretty serious step towards addressing some key factors that drive people away from the service. I, I think also, crucially, that the announcement reinforces a problem with the government's approach to social care, in that the government seems to only care about social care or direct money towards it when they feel like it can support the crisis in hospitals. And I think that's where we saw a lot of this money going that's been cut from the workforce initiatives is towards um, improving hospital discharge. I think the, the problem with that is that it looks like they haven't learned their lesson from this past winter when they poured £700 million of emergency cash into the service to try and improve discharge, which largely failed. Discharge is about where it was at the point right before they actually made those uh, the, the, or dispersed the cash to, to local authorities and the NHS. Um, and I think frustratingly, the, the, the sort of the key constraint on a lot of social care capacity is the workforce. And these, or the most recent announcement, definitely directed resource away from making steps towards improving the workforce issue. So I think we could potentially see a repeat of what we saw this last winter, which is in a panic trying to increase capacity by pouring money into service, which we which we know from experience now doesn't work and is also very, very poor value for money, as opposed to a sort of more measured, gradual increase in capacity through proper investment in the workforce. Jill, just zooming out for a moment, you have thought a lot about the process by which policy gets made in government, and it's not an easy thing to do, but what... Why is social care as an issue so difficult? I think it's so difficult, partly because it sort of suffers from being part of the same remit as the Department of Health, which is very much focused on the NHS. Um, Jeremy Hunt sort of notably sort of, you know, changed the name of his department, said, you know, I took over responsibility for social care, but actually he'd been responsible for social care all the time until he got Theresa May to change the name of his department in 2018 to the Department of Health and Social Care. But it was always treated within the Department of Health as a real sort of Cinderella. And I think one of the big problems you get in this is that whenever there's any call on resources, social care uh, is very much a sort of second order, third order priority to the NHS, partly because... Most people have very little understanding of the social care system. Uh, reform is very difficult because most people don't understand how poor the provision is now. So it's very difficult to build a sort of, you know, momentum for that. We got a bit of that. We had a bit of a breakthrough, I thought, when we had the health and social care levy uh, introduced as let's have open up a new funding route which enable more resources to be put into social care. Unfortunately, though, the sort of big slab of that at the start was taken over by the NHS uh, to try and get it out of its COVID-related backlogs. Uh, there were very big question marks about whether social care would actually ever see any of that money because, you know, waiting times in A&E uh, take precedence over sorting out social care. The problem is that the whole system is dramatically underfunded and Actually, if you have a first call on resources, it's better to address the underfunding of the whole system. And I think it's very difficult because the government is actually, quite interestingly, potentially opening up two big fronts on the care side, if you like, a sort of you know further extensions of the slightly underfunded bits of the welfare state. We saw Jeremy Hunt's announcements in the budget on childcare, which I think most people welcomed as a sort of big expansion, but most people also thought that he had 
put too low a price tag on it to actually meet that, you know, other than by tweaking childcare ratios and employing people at very low wages into the childcare sector. And we face a similar thing in social care, that we're not really prepared to write a big enough check to have a social care system that anyone really would want to use. But until we're prepared to have a conversation about tax levels, it's very difficult to have a conversation about how we can fund either of those. And ultimately, what we've seen is any government that steps out and tries to address this is then frightened off. We saw that with Andy Burnham's proposal as, uh, at the end of the Labour government, which were denounced by the Conservatives as death tax. Theresa May, you could argue, you know, would have been a very different prime minister had her social care proposals not been branded a dementia tax. Um, and, you know, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were quite brave in the health and social care levy, but that is one of the remnants of the quasi-quartering Liz Truss uh, reign of a month that uh, has stayed ditched. And so we don't have that extra funding source done up. And so, you know, we're sort of back to square one a bit here. And Stuart says we're now seeing some of the consequences in this announcement. The government's just slipped out in recess. And Stuart, what do you think of the chances of this being an issue which gets solved in the next parliament? It was it's it's telling that it was Rishi Sunak the Chancellor that supported the health and social care levy, and Boris Johnson's uh, raft of reforms back in 2021. But Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, doesn't really seem that committed to these particular reforms. He's very happy to push charging out into the future. Uh, he's very happy to cut funding for these other bits of um, of, of reform that, that I mentioned before. So I think even if the Conservatives stay in power after the next election, they they may well choose to either ditch the, what, what they've already committed to or or significantly change the, the, the shape of the proposals. And then if Labour form the next government, we could be looking at an even longer wait. They may want to put their own stamp or mark on the reform rather than just adopting what the Conservatives have proposed. And that could mean many more years of policy back and forth, small white papers, maybe a, a, a royal commission. I think finally the other issue is is funding. The fiscal outlook beyond 2024-25 is very, very tight. The current spending plans are for 1% spending increases across all public services for three years after spending review. But the majority of that will go to the protective services, health, education, foreign aid, and likely now defence because that's getting more attention. So that will probably require cuts to other services such as the criminal justice sector and I think crucially for this conversation, social care. So it's a little bit difficult to understand how they can stick to current spending plans and also increase uh, funding for the service. And the UK definition of health is the NHS. Yes, sorry, It's not is, prevention, yeah. it's not social care. And that's why all those other budgets yeah. that actually could relieve pressure yeah. in the sort of short, medium and longer term on the NHS uh, suffer every time we have a budget yeah. squeeze. I think Rishi Sunak's big contribution to the health and social care levy was to force Boris Johnson to pay for the reforms Boris Johnson felt committed to do. So True. I don't think we can take that as evidence that Rishi Sunak was a great social care reformer. The bit he was was a fiscally conservative chancellor who said, if you want to spend all this money, uh, Boris, you've got to write a cheque for it and I'm going to force you against all your instincts to introduce <laughs> this new, uh, new tax. And you could say the logic of that is if you don't maintain the tax, you can't have the spending. And Stuart, while we're talking about shortage of money, can you uh, quickly update us on the latest with the government's attempts to settle pay disputes with a whole range of public sector workers? Sure. So I, I think going back a few weeks, the, the, the government made 
pay, pay offers to both the NHS, excluding doctors and teachers. And those uh, pay offers were taken by the unions and now gone back to their, their members. The big news from this week is that every teaching union that has balloted its members has voted overwhelmingly to reject the government's pay deal. And by overwhelmingly, I mean uh, by in the order of sort of 98% rejection of that offer, which is, is quite resounding, actually a little bit surprising. Um, but maybe it shouldn't be too surprising given that no unions were actually recommending their members accept the deal. Uh, but still, I think, yeah, it's it's a shock to see so many uh, people coming out against it. The, the picture in the NHS is a little bit different. We're still waiting to hear the results of ballots, which will come in the next few weeks. But every health union, with the exception of Unite, has recommended that its members accept the deal. Though this does hide a little bit of dissent. Um, there's currently quite a dramatic dispute in the Royal College of Nursing um, about whether to recommend the deal to their members. And the leadership has actually had to call in the police to investigate uh, a faction that have sort of led a, a mini rebellion within the union to try and reject or recommend rejection of the pay deal. Either way, the the, the strike action is definitely not over. And I think there's going to be a lot more uh, news to come on this in the coming weeks. Let's end on a more positive note. It's 25 years since the signing of the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement, which in the words of the government website was a remarkable achievement and brought an end to 30 years of conflict in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles. Peter, how big an achievement was the Good Friday Agreement? It was extraordinary and uh, I, you know, I remember myself, Hannah, um, thinking how extraordinary it was when I was sitting in Stormont and the first uh, power sharing executive was being formed and Martin McGuinness, the late Martin McGuinness, former commander of the London Derry IRA, was the education minister who was in charge of all the children's education in the north. And it, it was it was our apartheid moment. It was something that I think those of us who grew up, you know, during that period really thought could never happen. And it and it and it did happen and it was extraordinary uh, uh, that it did. It created a kind of constitutional ambiguity that allowed nationalists um, to uh, uh, have Irish-only passports, north-south institutions, uh, to to feel Irish, to be Irish, as it were, to live their Irish identity, whilst recognising and accepting that Northern Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, and that unionists did have constitutional validity. And of course, you know, Brexit exploded that piece of ambiguity by putting the border back there north-south and we've seen how Brexit and the implementation of post-Brexit trading relationship has repolarized uh, Northern Ireland's politics uh, and and destabilized uh, um, the bit of the Good Friday Agreement that isn't really working and has you know only worked on and off which is the devolution the assembly the power sharing uh, settlement and therefore that's the bit that is still a massive work in progress, delivering effective devolved government to the people of Northern Ireland. For over a third of these 25 years, there's been no uh, assembly sitting. It's obviously not sitting at the moment. Uh, and that's the next bit. You know, the peace was secured, but the reconciliation in lots of respects hasn't been. And that's the big ongoing progress. Uh, the big ongoing challenge, you know, is to, is to deepen you know, to desegregate and to deepen economic progress in Northern Ireland. Do you think that what that tells us is that actually the agreement now needs updating if we're going to secure government that really works in Northern Ireland? I mean, it clearly doesn't in some sense because the instalment isn't set it, sitting. And because we have a situation after St Andrews where one, where both part, main parties have to agree 
to share power, it gives essentially a veto over the other. So right now it's unionist vetoing power sharing over the uh, uh, Windsor framework and the protocol. Before that, it was Sinn Féin uh, vetoing progress because of the Ash for Cash scandal. Um, now, it's easy to say, and people do say, it needs to be rejigged because this situation is disenfranchising the middle ground represented by the non-aligned, by the Alliance Party. I think it's difficult to see how you get there. I'd be interested to see what Jill thinks about that. You know, Politically, I think it is really difficult because it's not just unionists that don't want to give up that veto. It's not really clear whether Sinn Féin do too. But the longer it goes on, I mean, this is a kind of the kind of paradox of Northern Ireland is, of course, the union, if there is a border poll, which now means Northern Ireland rejoining the European Union, if there is a border poll, it will be decided by the centre ground. By definition, you know, if you assume that hardcore unionists are going to vote for the union and hardcore nationalists are going to vote for the for reunification, that centre ground of Northern Ireland politics are ultimately going to have the casting vote. And they're the bit that's disenfranchised by the current arrangement. But the politics of rejigging the agreement, as you say, I think is very complicated. Jill? The great thing about the Good Friday Agreement was that it got you know, a, some cross-community consent. It's quite interesting. We did a podcast available separately to celebrate the Good Friday Agreement and Institute for Government podcast, where one of the things that one of the lead UK officials was noting was the change from the need for unanimity to what was called sufficient consensus, which meant getting the Ulster Unionists on board without the Democratic Unionists was enough to say that this agreement has enough cross-community support to proceed. And it's quite difficult to see how you would rejig the Good Friday Agreement without that sort of cross-community support. That said, I mean, you know, there are sort of very sort of unintended consequences from the way in which the Good Friday Agreement operates now, notably the fact that it seems to be leading to the sort of death of the moderate parties you celebrate very much in the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. If you're a unionist for Stormont and you want to see a unionist first minister, you will, you know, may feel the need to vote for the Democratic Unionists. Similarly, uh, the SDLP is getting quite badly squeezed by Sinn Féin. So you're having that sort of polarisation in Northern Ireland. But I do think we need to remember just how extraordinary the governance position we have imposed on Northern Ireland is, uh, because mandatory power sharing uh, is... Yeah, not something <laughs> I think anyone thinks would particularly work. I mean, you know, it's more extreme than expecting Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson to sit down and work out a set of priorities and govern together. So it is a, it is quite an extraordinary system of government. But I do think there are increasing numbers of people in Northern Ireland who are very frustrated at the repeated collapse of the devolved institutions want to see devolved government back. And I thought one of the things that was really interesting in the Life and Times survey released uh, earlier this week by Queen's University Belfast was the sort of difference of view emerging between people who identified as strongly unionist and those who were sort of, you know, less strong unionists. Uh, and I think the sort of concern of the strong unionists should be the risk that they lose the less strong unionists into the centre block, the sort of alliance, non-aligned block, which is growing. And the fact that, you know, more and more people may pragmatically sort of start to question whether Northern Ireland is a viable, governable entity. Because what we're seeing is some real sort of big crises in public services, huge big budget decisions to come, 
eye-watering waiting list in the health service. We don't know that very much here, but I think the work that Stuart and the public services team has done sort of shows that, you know, Northern Ireland's in sort of a yeah, much worse state than uh, than the health service in England. Um, it's a bit all out of sight, out of mind over here. But uh, but it is sort of interesting. But that said, I do think it is worth celebrating. Uh, a lot of people will not remember just the sort of backdrop through through the troubles and just what an amazing achievement it was. But one of the things that you know came out very strongly when we were talking to some of the officials behind it was just the length of the process to get mm. people to agree that the sort of broad outlines of what ended up in the Good Friday Agreement mm-hmm. were being outlined in the you know early 1990s by the Northern Ireland Secretary then. But it took so long to get everybody on board um, and, you know, over the line. And it was only really, you know, the US envoy George Mitchell saying... You know, I'm out of here after Easter, so <laughs> you guys have got to agree finally that really sort of, you know, nudge the thing over to something that we can now celebrate. Jess, do you agree with Jill that this could ultimately end up backfiring for the DUP if they refuse to continue to refuse to engage in power sharing? So I think one thing that's been interesting and potentially surprising for a lot of kind of people watching uh, the politics of Northern Ireland from, from Westminster in particular is that throughout... Um, the kind of negotiations of the Windsor framework, the DUP had a lot of support for their very hardline position that they would not go back into government until these issues are resolved. I think one of the questions will be whether that changes now that there is no longer something to influence. Now the moment has passed, it's clear that the agreement won't be reopened, it's resolved the issues to the extent that it would satisfy a lot of people. Will people's attentions turn to the problems that Jill was just outlining there in terms of public services that people are really feeling on the ground. And I think it is worth underlining just what an acute crisis there is actually right now in Northern Ireland, because there is a huge hole in the budget and civil servants are being told that departments are going to have to make really significant cuts. And these are just not decisions that they feel that they are able to make. In fact, we've heard um, the FDA, the Civil Service Union, come out this week and say that uh, civil servants need some sort of political direction. It's this current situation is just not sustainable. And it's very different to the collapse um, that that happened to the three years previously because of the economic situation. So something is going to need to happen soon, I think, is is the real challenge here. Um, And so there is a question of whether the DUP will will step up. I think there is some optimism that even if the DUP doesn't come out and fully accept the deal and we haven't had their complete verdict yet, they voted Mm -hmm. against um, the the framework in in the, uh, the vote that happened in Parliament, but that was kind of just on some aspects of the agreement as far as they were concerned. So it is possible that they might come out and and support it. That would be the kind of best case scenario. Uh, The second best case Mm. scenario would be that they don't support it, but they say this is enough for us to go back into government. Um, So I think we should retain some optimism there, even if, you know, it takes a a few months longer. Um, But ultimately, if that doesn't happen, I think we also need to consider what's next, because there's a really, really challenging situation at the moment for government in Northern Ireland, and that has real impacts and consequences on people there. Peter, I'll give you the final word. Where are your optimism levels on this? They're quite low, I think. Um, they're quite low, which is which is depressing. But I, I think it's going to take uh, a lot of effort to grind 
to grind the, the machine back into life. Um, I hope after the uh, May elections, the DUP may grudgingly go back in. Um, but, you know, the budget issues are uh, are very severe and the politics the, the politics is stuck and the longer it remains stuck, the harder it is to get it back together every, uh, every, every, every time that happens. I mean, Hannah, just to add that it is quite an unattractive prospect to be in government. I mean, to say, you know, you can, you know, accept a deal you don't think is very good, uh, that doesn't, you know, recognise your constitutional concerns about the uh, relation, new UK relationship with uh, with the EU and the Windsor Framework, and then come in and have your civil servants on day one say, "So, Minister, what are you going to cut to meet this budget gap?" You know, uh, it may be that it takes quite a lot of UK government money to bribe the government yeah. in Northern Ireland back into office, which is the past experience yeah. that uh, that restoration of the executives always come with quite big checks in Northern Ireland terms. The lucky thing for Northern Ireland is there's so few people there because it's still very small relative to the rest of the UK that what's big money in Northern Ireland terms is relatively small in yeah. relation to the overall UK budget. But if I could perhaps just yeah. end on a note of slight more optimism, I think one thing that really struck me um, kind of in the podcast that we did about the Good Friday Agreement and you know, hearing about everything more generally, it's just how difficult those issues were. We were talking about prisoner releases of convicted terrorists and that those are being agreed between two parties who had a real stake in these issues, who had relatives who were affected by this, all these sorts of questions. And yet we were able to essentially do the impossible and, and reach an agreement on this. And so I think it will be incredibly difficult to go past this impasse in Northern Ireland. It will require a huge amount of support from the UK government and the Irish government. But we shouldn't think of anything as as not possible because as history shows, you know, we have got there before. Thank you, Jess, for taking us <laughs> back in a positive direction. Uh, because that's it for today. Thank you so much to Jess Sargent, Jill Rutter, Stuart Hoddenart, and especially Peter Foster. And thank you to you all for listening. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms, including that Good Friday Agreement uh, podcast, which Jess and Jill have been discussing. Don't forget to celebrate Easter by giving us a nice review too. As always, check out our website for all our comments. We've got new comments up on Dover, Social Care, Green Day and more, as well as a new paper as part of our uh, review of the UK Constitution, which looks at English devolution. There is, as you've heard, rather a lot going on. Let's hope that the Easter weekend is a little quieter. Have a nice break, everyone.